listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. From time to time, you'll hear somebody say something like, you know, I'm not really very religious, but I do appreciate Jesus as a great moral teacher. Be curious to know what such a person would think the moral of this parable tonight is. The moral of the story is venture capitalists win? Or maybe for all that Jesus had taught that the last shall be first, that he came to save and seek the lost, in the end God will be more pleased with the winners and rather condemning of the losers. Is that the moral of the parable? Or maybe you had better put your time and talents to work for the kingdom and maybe up your contribution in the offering basket or else you might find yourself weeping and gnashing your teeth on Judgment Day. Now, wouldn't that make for a wonderfully high-octane stewardship sermon? For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then the man went away. He went away, and Mr. Five Talents goes straight to work, trading and investing and working what he'd been entrusted with. And what do you know? Mr. Five Talents doubled his five to ten. Mr. Two Talents does the same with what he's been given. Same result, doubled. But Mr. One Talent... Mr. One Talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Why would he do that? Well, maybe because each had been given according to his ability, as Jesus says as he tells the story. And maybe Mr. One Talent wasn't so able in the marketplace. Best just to take the little he'd been given and play it really utterly safe, right? Except even his little His one talent was actually an awful lot, a talent being the equivalent of 15 years' worth of a laborer's wage. So to get a bit of a parallel sense of that, if you think of a full-time job at the current Manitoba minimum wage, over 15 years full-time, that person would earn $351,000, buried in a hole in the ground. Well, the key, I think, is actually what Jesus has this third slave say to the master to account for why he's tucked that talent, that huge amount of money, so safely away. He says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Or, as the inimitable Robert Ferrer Capon paraphrases it, I was afraid. I know you. You are a hard man. 
I know you grab everything, even if it doesn't belong to you. So I thought to myself, watch your step, Arthur. If he keeps track of every penny everywhere like that, even when it's not his, just think how mad he could get if you should happen to lose something that was his. And so, sir, here I am. Here's your money, in full, on time. Tell me I'm a good boy. Which, as we heard in the parable tonight, rather raises the ire of the master. You knew, did you? that I reap where I did not sow, gather where I did not scatter. Really? So what's with the hole in the ground, Arthur? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank so I could have collected a little bit of interest? You don't know harsh from nothing. Arthur, I'll show you harsh. And here Robert Capon comments on what he names the crucial point of the parable. Namely, the judgment issued against the servant who acts not out of faith, but out of prudence. And it's a misguided prudence at that, as it totally locked that servant down to a posture that utterly backfires. But, Capon adds, this is as we do. When we fearfully try to deal with God on the basis of what we think God is like, rather than on the basis of what we trust him to be in Jesus, we get locked down. When we act on fearfully on the basis of what we think God is like, rather than on the basis of what we trust God to be in Jesus, you can see it all over the Gospels. In the disputes Jesus has with the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who have already decided exactly who God is and what God requires and have managed to box up the divine in a nice, tight package. Their scrupulous adherence to the law, their firm lines between who's in and who's out, who's pure, who's impure, who's acceptable and who should be shunned. All of that adherence keeps them from seeing what God is doing right now in front of their faces in Jesus. They have, in a sense, buried their talent in the ground because they've taken the rich treasure entrusted to them by God, the law, the prophets, the deep stories of their forebears, the temple, the promise that through Israel God was going to bless the whole of the world. They've taken all of those things and they've put it in a box, wrapped it in pretty paper, and tied it with a string, double knotted. And when Jesus comes and says to them, basically, you know, everything you have in that box is meant to be taken out. It's meant to be lived, seen, embraced, shared. Everything you have in that box has actually been talking about me for ages. What do they do? They just tie the knots even tighter. Keep the divine in the box exactly as we understand it to be. Because, they basically say to him, 
because we know, we know about the righteousness of God, and it doesn't look anything like you, Jesus. You see that all through the Gospels, that tension. But it's not just them, of course. It's never just about them once upon a time 2,000 years ago. That's too easy. People across the ages have done it. They've done it in the name of God. They have buried the talent in the ground. We know who is in and who is out. Churches across the centuries have said that. We know what you have to say or believe or do in order to get into the kingdom. That's all part of burying a talent. But how about the people who get crushed? Crushed under a burden of guilt or unworthiness or deep shame, thinking that they are little more, to borrow a phrase from Jonathan Edwards, little more than sinners in the hands of an angry God. Not that I'm suggesting that Jesus is looking to pack off those guilt and shame-ridden folks into the outer darkness simply because they've been fearful. No, but the challenge issued here is to deal with God and to understand God, not based on our fears of what God might be like, but on the basis of what we trust God to be in Jesus. We still have to contend with that saying, that difficult saying, for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This from the lips of Jesus? I mean, it's such a stark contrast to the last shall be first. Or to the lines in the Magnificat that say that in the coming of Christ, God has already brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So how do you make sense of those things? And then you hear this thing about more being given to those who have and everything being taken from those who have not. Well, Clearly, in, in, in this parable, Jesus is not trying to present a story about investment strategies and financial success. He's not, not, not working the territory of the prosperity preachers. Think instead in terms of gift. Because his life, of course, is gift to us, to the world. The gift given to Israel that had been tied up so tightly in that box by its leadership, double and triple knotted. Or the gift given to the church that was sometimes lost under layers of pomp or prestige or power. The gift of mercy and forgiveness given to the church that was at times buried away under layers of judgmentalism condemnation, shunning, rejection. The gift of life given to each of us, which we can sometimes set aside, bury in the ground even as we pursue things that actually keep us less than fully alive. Think of the talent given as being the gift. And then free the gift. Unbury the gift. 
trust the gift. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to them. Take what you've been given and trust it and celebrate it and use it and be it. And then as we do that, watch. Watch how something freely given us can become more than we can possibly ask or imagine. Now that's one heck of a parable to have to deal with on the night when we're going to baptize a baby. I mean, Cora, it had been a heck of a lot easier if the lectionary had given me the Good Samaritan, but it didn't. And maybe that's a good thing. Because the challenge issued to all of us to take the gift we have been given, to not bury it, but instead free it, use it, live it, be it, it's actually the very thing that we are saying to you, little girl. We have to do it together as community. I mean, your parents and your godparents are about to take these wild promises on your behalf about the renunciation of evil and wickedness and Satan and all that destroys and corrupts and the acceptance of Christ and a life under his mercy and obedience to his love. Holy smokes, and you're six months old. But you see, Cora, it's your mom and dad's intention to help you grow up and live into that gift. And the godparents who are going to stand up there with your parents... The three of them are also saying, we're going to be particularly with you. But it is actually an act that belongs to all of us. So whether you're here as friends and family and guests to to witness this act, you know, you're here precisely for this baptism. Or whether you're here because this is where you always are on Sunday nights. We're all making a bit of an investment in this little life. Embrace this gift. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.